You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your arrow flight. Visit BowTechArchery.com and check out the SR350 and the CP28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles, and today is day one of Hunt Stand Week. And so what we're going to be doing this week is all three episodes, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, are going to be... um, uh, content uh, conversations with people who are connected to Hunt Stand, who write for Hunt Stand, who work for Hunt Stand, who uh, are affiliated with Hunt Stand in some way, shape, or form. Now, this isn't going to be a conversation that is specifically about how Hunt Stand works, right? It's not going to be. It's going to be conversations with uh, guys like today's guest. Uh, we're talking with Mark Kaiser, and, and Mark is a hardcore hunter he's a writer he does some work for for hunt stand he uses it and we talk a little bit about strategy we talk a little bit about i guess how he got into into hunting and uh, we talk about hunting whitetails we talk about uh out west you know his his hunting adventures out west so it's a really fun entertaining and educational podcast and so you kind of get everything in this episode and i hope hopefully you guys enjoy it and uh um, like I said, it's hunt stand week, so you know I'm gonna sit here and tell you, if if you are not a hunt stand user, I strongly suggest it for multiple reasons, right? Number number one, if if you're the kind of guy who is looking for value, value to me is you know the amount it costs. Hunt stand is like thirty for their package. You can download it for free anywhere that you download apps. It's free to download, but then if you want to upgrade, you can upgrade to their main package for like 30 bucks a year. That's it, 30 bucks a year. Some of the competition is like 140, I believe, dollars a year or or higher. And so you're really saving $100, but you're not losing any functionality. You're actually gaining it. It has tons of functionality uh, for just about any type of hunter, right? Whether you're looking for um, you know, just just to pin, you know, put pins. Whether you're looking to mark out food plots. Whether you're looking for ton. I mean, it, th- here's what I'll say. It's my job to tell you to go to HuntStand.com and read up on all the functionality that uh, that HuntStand offers. So go check out HuntStand, right? And uh, I think I think we're still offering a discount code SN20 for 20% off. So you get that discount code as well. Go check out HuntStand. Um, the the capabilities and functionalities are awesome for someone who wants to journal and document their time spent in the woods. And so you can go do that. Now, there's some other uh, companies that I got to talk about today. Commercials, Tethered. If you're looking for a, a, a saddle, 
go check out Tethered. The best part about uh, uh, Tethered is that they are a one-stop shop for all of your saddle hunting needs. And I know that sounds like some dumb written like push. It is, but they are. If that makes sense, they are the one-stop shop, not only for the platforms, the saddles, the climbing sticks, the, all the accessories you need, but also for the information on how to become a better, better saddle hunter. And you get all that with tethered. So go check out tethered's website, uh, wasp archeries. Again, I, I don't know why, but every time I bring up wasp broadheads, I, I visualize Metallica playing in the background, just this implement of destruction and anything that they hit they destroy and i am a huge fan of wasp broadheads not only because of the people who work there but because they have they're they're made a majority of their heads are made in america with an awesome design that works and with the best possible materials. And so you add those three things up on top of their customer service, and what you have is, is a product that I am very confident with. So if you're looking for a broadhead, look no further than a Wasp, I'm telling you, uh, I think you'll be pleased. And uh, we have a discount code for them, NFC20, NFC20, and that's gonna save you 20% off with uh, Wasp broadheads. And lastly, title, title, yeah, I can't talk, I'm jacked title sponsor vortex optics if you're looking for a rifle scope if you're looking for a red dot if you're looking for a rangefinder a pair of binoculars a spotting scope go check out vortex the best part about vortex is their vip warranty so if you damage your product in the field i'm very hard on my equipment i drag my stuff all over the place and if it breaks, you send it to them. They fix it for free and then ship it back to you. On top of that, they have an awesome apparel line that you guys all need to go check out, vortexoptics.com. And now we can get into the very first episode of Hunt Stand Week with our friend Mark Kaiser. Hopefully you guys enjoy. Three, two, one. All right. On the very first episode of Hunt Stand Week, I am joined by Mark Kaiser. Mark, how are we doing, man? Good. So it's almost hunting season. So, yeah. well, it is hunting. Season. It is hunting season, right? Right. I know there's a lot of guys out west uh, starting the process. Of, or some of them have been antelope hunting. Some of them have been. Uh, I think I don't know if today marks maybe opener of elk in some states. Uh, and if, uh, Colorado might, there's a few that might September yeah. 1st is the big opener. And then Montana opens the third of September third. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Um, and so I don't know, like, I feel like the only reason I know this is because of email exchanges that we've had, but it's, it sounds to me like you're getting ready to kick off a big elk push here pretty soon. Yeah, I go, I go back to back on elk pretty hard for the next, uh, well, you could say almost two months, but uh, I'll have a little bit of a break in there depending on success. And I, I'm helping some other guys, so I'll be jumping around from my hunts to their hunts. But I'm actually uh, packing my trailer right now at this very minute. Well, I was shooting rifles right before I came in to do this, and then uh, I'm packing my trailer to leave out in the morning to put an elk camp in and then start on the Montana opener on the 3rd of September, just this coming Saturday. Nice. 
Nice. So it sounds nice. like you have a, a very full fall coming your way. Yeah, it's it's full. It's probably full fuller than it needs to be, and it, I blame myself. But yeah, uh, I I do a lot of DIY hunting, uh, especially for elk, and that is very time consuming. Unless unless you got some type of honey hole or drew a premier tag, which is hard to draw, but a premier tag where there's not that many hunters. If you're doing general units or, or units where there's a lot of hunting pressure on public land, you you really have got to put the time and effort in. And and so that's where I eat up a lot of my time. And then I, I love to Midwest whitetail hunt. So I try to carve out a little niche of uh, November or maybe more than a little, but uh, half of November to do that. I hook up with some friends of mine, hunt Kansas, and I come back up into South Dakota and finish up there so nice nice yeah this uh for me i usually go on one out of state trip and usually that's uh that's a western game like uh, mule deer elk and then i come back and i hunt iowa this year well i should i shouldn't say that the last two years i i've really tried to um add in a second mule deer stop somewhere along the lines just because i'm i've i'm slowly becoming infatuated with mule deer and (laughs) and and so i've just kind of put elk to the side for the time being and just started collecting preference points and and so focusing on the the diy public side of mule deer hunting and then probably picking up another whitetail state this year and the reason i'm doing that is because i've been a really good husband and father the last 10 months and so <laughs> and so my brownie pump points are at an all-time high uh, well that's important yeah. and uh and chasing mule deer is probably i mean i i'm kind of stuck on elk but it's a higher priority because yeah. that's a seems to be a declining species they're just they're having a hard goal of it and uh in in our neck of the woods here, the the mountain mule deer population is just disappearing to no end. You find good pockets of mule deer yet on private land, but uh, I do a lot of shed hunting in the mountains in the spring. And la- the last couple of years, I I just haven't been finding any mature yeah. or any mule deer sheds whatsoever. Yeah. So, so that's that's something I, I wouldn't mind digging into and, and you're you're a western guy, right? So just let everybody know where where you live or what region of the US you live. I, I live uh on the up along the front range of the Bighorn Mountains and that and those are in north central Wyoming and I live right on the Montana border. So I hunt Montana and Wyoming a lot. Gotcha. Inter- in fact I, I hunt them almost as much each uh, even though Wyoming's my home state, I spent a lot of time in Montana. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. But I, I grew up in South Dakota and I grew up in corn country. So I have this, you know, really, I have an infatuation with whitetails. I go back every fall, like I said, and hunt uh, whitetails. And I'm, I'm really tuned into Kansas right now as my yeah. big whitetail hotspot. So. Yeah. But elk, uh, elk eat at me if I'm not looking for sh- shed antlers in the spring i'm hunting them in the fall and scouting them in the summer yeah yeah so the the reason i ask that is to put it in a little i feel like here in iowa uh and there's other places in in the midwest that we'll run into a um a, a big spout of ehd right it'll wipe a herd out or it'll reduce it and then a year or two later they just seem to rebound from it and um 
you know, they it just things, things are cyclical, but they always kind of come back to a good spot. But what you're, what you've mentioned out West about mule deer and the mountain mule deer. And I've heard this from other people too, from, from your experience out in the field, what is it about maybe, or even the elk population? Uh, Cause I feel like uh, I've, I've heard guys talk about certain elk populations not doing as well either. What is it about the West that I, I feel the herd health or the, the herd of mule deer or elk is just a little bit more fragile? Well, I'll clarify one thing. Elk are doing fairly well in most states. So I, I wouldn't necessarily throw elk into there. But mule deer, uh, if, you, if you study evolution and look at the history of mule deer, look at the history of whitetails, look at the history of elk, Elk were spread across the United States from coast to coast and, and from the tundra at down almost to the, um, you know, into Mexico. So they're, they're a very adaptable species. Mule deer, on the other hand, evolved in a very niche species like pronghorn. So, there's, so, when, so when things change in their backyard, it, it really affects them. White tails, same thing. They're very adaptable like a um, yeah. elk. And, uh, and, and white tails have pushed into mule deer country yep. because of the greening of the West. You know, we've carved out pathways for them beyond the riparian zones where they, they were found there during, you know, the, like the Lewis and Clark journals, uh, uh illustrate that, that there were white tails out in the West, but the more green ways you make North or West and North the the faster they can expand mule deer just have a tough time so when energy exploration uh urbanization suburbanization um, uh, the aging of the sagebrush community wildfires lack of wildfires drought uh maybe too much rain which i I don't think you can ever have (laughs) but there there's a group called the, the mule deer working group and it's a it's a bunch of wildlife agencies in the west and they meet every year or, or more than that more than once probably but to share their thoughts and and they've got over a dozen factors that are affecting why mule deer are not an expanding uh, population right now in some areas they are but as an overall group across the west uh, there's there could be trouble ahead for mule deer. Yeah. And, and you just can't lay blame on one thing. You can't just say, Oh, it's coyotes eating the fawns, which they do, but you can't, you can't just say it. That's the one factor. It's just, it's all an intertwining bunch of factors. Right. Right. Which, which kind of surprises me um, because I, I heard a fact about mule deer that, um, that I don't know, I thought it was very interesting, and I, and from from my understanding, uh, a white-tailed deer has the ability to consume, I think, somewhere around 250 different uh, plant varietals, and meaning they they can eat 200 different 250-ish different types of plants and trees and things like that. Out in the mule deer world, I heard that they have the ability to uh, eat somewhere like over 400 different varietals of plants and so that tells me that they they that that allows them to eat more types of food um and then just them being in these harsh in, uh, whether you're you know these harsher environments whether you're you know over ten thousand feet whether you're in the the plains or the 
the rain, like nor- the northern plains or western plains, where some may consider that kind of like uh, an arid environment, all the way down to Mexico, where these animals are living in straight up desert conditions. And so it it blows my mind that they're 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 more fragile than the whitetail is. But that, but again, that's a, that's a long, narrow niche strip yeah. of habitat compared to going from there's whitetails. I, I would bet now in 49 of the 50 states. And, and I've heard a lot of biologists saying that it's just a matter of years before they make it to, uh, uh, Alaska. Cause I've, I've actually seen them right on the border of the Northwest territories. When we've been bear hunting. Yeah. There. So in Alberta are right on the border. And I know guys that tell me, uh, well, I shouldn't say guys. I've I've interviewed biologists up there. They've seen them, and you know they're documented in the Northwest Territory. So it's, uh, but but one of the things is all those varieties of forage, Forbes browse you're talking about, uh, have been changing too. And one of the yeah. big things that changes them is, is the Smoky Bear Syndrome, where there's no no wildfire spreading across the landscape every you know three to four or five years, you know, renewing that. Uh, sagebrush community or, or, or foothill community of, of browse. And I, I see it here, you know, in the winter and we have hard winters right in my horse pasture. Those deer have a hard time because the, the sagebrush is so old and decrepit that it just doesn't give them as much nutrient as nutrients as they, they, sh- they would be getting had it been burned over, you know, yeah. several times over the last 20 years. Yeah. Things are definitely changing. Um, so I kind of want to, uh, you know, talk to us. This is hunt stand week on uh, the nine finger chronicles. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your involvement uh, with hunt stand. What do you, what do you do for hunt stand? Uh, I was talking to our, our mutual friend, Tim Kent, and it sounds like uh, you do a lot for them. You do some writing for them. What's your role within, within that organization? Well, I'm a writer uh, by trade. So I, 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 I write hunting articles and do the photography for it. And, and that's kind of transitioned into a little bit of influencing now. That's what they call it. They yeah. Call it. <laughs> it used to be branding, marketing. And branding. Right, right. So, so I work with, uh, yeah, I've, I've been a trusted hunt stand user for years. The guys at hunt stand knew that I knew, I knew them, uh, you know, when they were, some of them were first starting at hunt stand. So we just kind of teamed up together and, uh, uh, they know that I use it a lot, whether I'm, I'm doing whitetail hunting in the Midwest, uh, predator hunting here in, you know, uh, out in the prairies of Wyoming or the Great Plains or, you know, up in the mountains doing elk hunting. I use it in different aspects, you know, depending on the hunts. But uh, in fact, this morning I downloaded two maps to my smartphone just so I had them, obviously, on this next elk trip so I could uh, uh, refer to them quick because where I'm going to be, it's odds are pretty low. I'm going to have connectivity to right. <laughs> anywhere where there's a cell tower. Every once in a while I get up high enough on a peak, I can grab a yeah. service, but, but this, but having that, that, you know, that function alone is, is really good. It's great. Even in the Midwest, if you're down in a, you know, hollow or coolie hunting, you got a tree stand down there and you can't get line of sight to a cell tower. At least you got the map there on your phone. You can still do what you need to do on the hunting app. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the, um, the, the way you use it, because I feel like it's a tool 
Like these digital maps are such a great tool for people, not only just, just for like the mapping aspect of it, but I, the way I use digital maps is for the journaling aspect of it. Like it's almost like keeping a journal and then being able to go back and reference your journal um, as the, the season progresses or you're looking back on historic data or whatever. You're in the field a lot. Sounds like whether you're shed hunting, hunting, or uh, you know, or scouting. How are you, how are you using Hunt Stand annually? One of the biggest aspects that I use it in is always looking ahead to the next area I want to hunt yeah. because you're going to hit road. You're going to hit a roadblock, and and I do the journaling. In fact, I use that same word aspect like you do but for me it's more of especially on public land hunting you're always hitting a roadblock you're always hitting you're either running into more people you're running into rugged country you're you're running into some type of obstacle where you need to look ahead and having that uh, ability to look at a satellite image right there on your phone and, and then add in a, a 3D aspect, a topographical aspect, uh, the the natural atlas aspect to see where the nearest trail access might be. If you're, you know, say you're looking three miles uh, over a mountain and you're wondering, well, do I need to, you know, hike the three miles from right here or can I come back forward in another way? That's probably the, the biggest way that I, uh, I utilize it overall. Now, there's so many ways to use hunt stand i mean we could talk for hours on it sitting here but i I really really use it to be to to look ahead get a jump start ahead and try to um try to invigorate myself when i'm when i'm having a hard public land hunt and that's more often than not the case these days uh just gotta be always trying to find the next place to look at where you're gonna find especially elk because elk are elk are like whitetails elk don't stay in one place they're 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 what they call a long-legged cursor and that means they cover a heck of a lot of country when and where they want to yeah yeah that makes sense um so when it comes to like i i i I have a feeling we use it in similar ways, just like a lot of the the users do. But when it comes to always looking for the next thing, and I know this this is species dependent because every species has a specific environment that they're looking at. But from a uh, maybe a generalization standpoint, is there things that you are looking for for that next uh, hunt or that next? Uh, you know, like right now I'm hunting uh, area A, but if this goes bad, I need to be prepared for area B. What are you looking for specifically on area B? You know, says, Hey, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make sure it has these things. Well, whether I'm hunting, uh, you know, a Midwest whitetail or or mountain elk, I, I always look at the basics. I try to break everything down to the basics and that's food, water, and refuge. So you're looking for those three things, you know, whether I'm in Kansas or whether I'm in Montana, I'm trying to find those three things because all animals need that. Now it varies obviously depending on species. Yeah. But the other thing I'm using a lot, if I, especially if I'm hunting an area I've hunted before is the journal aspect 
and I'm going back to all the icons that I put in, the rub marks, the scrape marks. Uh, did I find a food source here? And I'm and I'm and I'm trying to. Sorry about that. <laughs> I thought I had my phone on silent. You ready again? Yeah. One, two, right. three. Sorry. So I always try to focus on the basics to begin with. I just knock everything down to food, water, refuge, whether it's whitetails or elk, uh, even coyotes when I'm coyote hunting. Uh, if I'm having a tough time trying to figure out where these animals are. And you can use your journaling, especially if you ha have hunted this area from the past, by looking at, you know, past icons you put on there, whether it's scrapes, rubs, water sources you found, food sources you found. Uh, even if you know the neighbor's got a food plot, you should be marking stuff like that because uh, even though you can't hunt it, the deer might be using it. So, when things go bad, I backtrack. I start looking at all those things. Where do the lines connect to? And do I need to change my focus because of that? In the fall, a really good, you know, um, uh, a real good example is the fact that the harvest is going on. So these soybeans may be being used by a, a, a herd of bachelor groups, you know, or, or a whole herd of whitetails, and then all of a sudden a combine comes through, takes the whole field out, and, a, and the way they efficiently farm these days, there's not much there to grub on anymore. So then that whole group of deer may move a mile and a half to a different food plot that's still green. Yeah. So those are things you got to look at. And same way with elk. If you're chasing a big herd of elk, they need a lot of grass. They're grazers. They're not browsers like moose and uh, whitetails. So you got to find fairly good openings of grass for 20, 30 head or more of elk to, to graze on. So I'm always kind of looking at that. Where are these, these elk aren't going to be able to fuel themselves on a dark north slope with pine needles. They've yeah. got to have a place to come out on, feed in the grass, and then escape back into. Yeah. So uh, I use hunt stand a lot for that. That's, again, it, it, you're using your old, what old uh, icons, what old information you put on there and trying to move forward to a new spot. Yeah. So you, you hunt on a lot of public ground, right? Out West I do. Yeah. My, my Midwest hunting is basically, uh, I've got some connections where we're hunting farms and right. ranches. Right. So let me ask you this when it comes to, and I, I and I know that you just kind of went through the high level part of it. Um, so in certain areas, and this is one thing that I'm struggling with in South Dakota, is there's a lot of public land, right? And I'm looking for stuff that, and, and I live in Iowa, which means that I can't necessarily get out there and scout it um, just from a time perspective, right? I, I pretty much go there and I hunt for my, you know, my six to eight days, depending on, uh, you know, what I'm seeing. And then I, I got to head back home. So it, it's hard to get out there and scout during the off season, just because I'm putting all my eggs in the hunting season basket. Um, how, how do you go about narrowing down public land to find, you know, in a, in a scenario where there there's potentially hundreds of thousands of acres to choose from? 
I, I always it almost always boils down to access. Yeah. Finding limited access areas where you have a big chunk of land and, and typically I like it to be two to four square miles of a block of country that is hard to access. Yeah. That it's either hard to access because of vertical elevation, rugged topography, the sheer distance. But, uh, be, and, and I go back, this is a figure I throw around a lot in my articles, but 70 to 74% of the American public is obese or overweight. So <laughs> the hunt, hunting group falls into that. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe hunters are just a little bit less than that, you know, but I, I don't know. I've been to a lot of deer. Camp. <laughs> uh, 70 to 74% of that group is not going one mile right past the trailhead right right so you got to deal with 25 percent, and and those guys burn out after two or three days i i my my typical hunting partner quits changes to a different area or leaves by day four in the mountains of uh when we're elk hunting gotcha and so and i i feel that's an average hunter too yeah so let me ask you this when it comes to like and I've seen it firsthand. I, I went on an elk hunt in in Idaho, and man, we from the trailhead to about a mile or, or two in, and, and I say it two miles in because um, it was easy to access two miles in. It wasn't like uh, up and down, up and down, up and down. I mean, it was one slight incline, and you had to go you had to go down a little bit, then back up, but it wasn't crazy like certain parts in Colorado were so but when we got to that point there was uh, there the the topography changed and we had to make a decision we gotta we have to drop down almost a thousand feet and then go up almost a thousand feet to get to where the elk were at and we we didn't do it right so have you have you seen any type of I don't know, a magic number or uh, like once people, the pressure shuts off, is it just like the next ridge over is when people, when you start seeing um, the game or is there a, a scientific method to locating where they're living? No, it's, it's all based on the overall environment and it, and it goes back to those basics. They'll, they'll run from you three miles in a snap of a finger to get away from you, but they may have to come back a mile and a half to get, to start getting back into grazing or, or, uh, or, or get to that North slope that they, where they, you know, felt safe earlier. Once the hunting pressure, if the hunting pressure starts to lessen up. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's all, it's all based on environment, but one number, and you mentioned it right there, that thousand foot number, uh, most of my ascents where I leave a trailhead and try to climb up to where the elk are, are over a thousand. They're probably average closer to 1500. And that number almost always a thousand to 1500 cancels out everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary number. I mean, you get, you get some, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely it, it a is. scary number uh, when you're talking to, to a guy like me. Right. Where (laughs) it literally takes me 24 plus hours to acclimate before. Like, so 
and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll share this with you. Uh, when I did go on that, uh, Idaho hunt in 2014, we drove 19 hours from Iowa to Idaho, got out of the car, changed clothes, didn't acclimate at all and just started hiking straight up the mountain. And I was mentally defeated on the hike in for that whole trip because I had, I had no idea what to expect. Now, when I went to Colorado, you know, we stayed down for a night, then we went up to the cabin, packed, like got the camp set up and at 10,000 feet. And I was able to acclimate for, I don't know, a total of 18 hours, let's say before I started hunting. And that, that saved my, my body pretty much. Uh, so, so when I hear someone say, Oh no, the only thing we have to do is hike up a thousand feet. I just, I can already feel my butt cheeks burning <laughs> when, you know, when, when you get to that, uh, when you get to that point. So that pretty much, <laughs> that pretty much then in, in your opinion, eliminates most of the, the pressure at that point. Two miles or a thousand to 1500 feet typically gets rid of the the majority of the folks you get those 20 year olds tough 20 year olds and then a handful of guys in their 30 40s and 50s that stay in shape yeah yeah the rest of them are just kind of road hunters at that point Uh, yeah and you see that eight day tv traffic is just off the charts stupid anymore yeah yeah um you know everybody everybody wants to hear a shortcut or a, a trick that somebody can can implement to make living in like or make hunting a mule deer or hunting an elk in certain environments easier but it sounds to me like the biggest obstacle is the terrain is there is there other than an ATV is there a way to beat the terrain to get to the game Buy a guided hunt on a ranch where they'll drive you around in a truck. <laughs> so just, just I mean, have eight grand available. Eight, well, eight or 10 or 12. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mule deer hunts are getting more expensive than elk hunts, big mule deer. Yeah. Um, You know, the one shortcut is to sleep in elk, stay there, take a bivy and stay a couple days. So you're not going back and forth. I, I do a lot of back and forth to the, my base camp. I, uh, my, my typical morning is three in the morning on the four wheeler by four, four, whatever, something drive an hour on the four wheeler and then hike in an hour to an hour and a half, uh, to get to my spot right at shooting light. Yeah. That's how I typically hunt. And, but to, to me, if I'm not into bugling elk by five o'clock in the afternoon, I don't stay usually. Yeah. I mean, if you get the occasional straggler satellite that'll light up, but most herds of elk, they get restless around three, four five in the afternoon and they get on their feet. And in the minute those cows start getting on their feet, that bull bugles. He just, he, it's all, I mean, in some areas they might not because of pressure, but even in, I, I've hunted a lot of areas now. If, if, when things start stirring in the afternoon, you're going to hear a bugle typically and if i don't hear that bugle i i usually think well i want to get a good night's sleep and hit another spot in the morning yeah um so are you an afternoon like would you prefer afternoon or morning on on elk i'm a morning guy i've killed almost all my elk in the morning yeah yeah and like i said if i if i'm not getting into elk i figure i mean i'm i'm a little bit older guy too 
so I'm not, I just don't have that 20 year old, uh, run and gun mentality anymore. But I, I figure if I'm not into elk, things don't look good. I'm, I'm, I'd rather get a good night's sleep and do a hard morning. And, and I catch those elk a lot of times the last couple of years, rifle hunting, my success is two minutes, if not five minutes of shooting light. And those elk were just about ready to be gone for the day in dark timber. Yeah. So, uh, and then sometimes if it's too nice, they don't have to come out until after dark. You know, this is, this is post rut bulls, but, um, uh, and like I said, during the rut here coming up, if, if that I don't hear bugling by late afternoon, I'm not sitting there till, you know, elk hunting is kind of like turkey hunting. The days are long. So you can just burn yourself out just trying to hunt, you know, dawn and dusk real hard. Yeah. So I, I try to throw all my, my eggs into in the morning basket. I, I hunt in the afternoon. If I get into bugling bulls, I'll follow them to the, you know, till the end of shooting light. But uh, if I don't, I just don't feel like why should I be sitting up here beating myself up and uh, you know get rejuvenated and hit another spot in the morning. Yeah, for sure. Does sure. that then um, when it I guess when it comes to elk, um, you've just kind of you, you've come up with what kind of works for you, and if it if it goes outside of of that plan, then you've found it best to get back, get a good night's sleep. And hit it hard the next morning instead of going and searching and, and spending a ton of energy looking for something that may not exist. Correct. And I have the flexibility. So I, I'm a freelance journalist. Yeah. I, I, I just pound my office from the time I get back from hunting season starting in December sometime until uh, this morning. I mean, I just, I put in tons of hours in the office. I'm usually at my desk or in my office by between four or five in the morning. In the afternoons, I'm either working out or or shooting, um, getting weapons prepped and ready to go, camp stuff ready to go, whatever. And, And that's, and so for like nine months of the year, I'm just a working maniac. Yeah. So I can have that flexibility. Now, you might not be able to do that or the regular working man can. And, and that's right. And you mentioned it and I'll, I'll say it again. And this is specifically public land hunting is it's physically demanding. You're going to burn yourself out. And I do it all the time. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to go hunting, but in the same sense, I know what's ahead. It's grueling. Yeah. And you mentally get burnt out. And that's a huge aspect. I think people don't think about is, you have got to uh, stay on your mental game, and that's where the sleep comes into me. If I if yeah. I can get, you know, every two or three days get get a real good night's sleep instead of trying to catch up on sleep, uh, laying on a pine cone in a rock and whatever, you know, middle of the day somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that I I realized in my first couple trips was we would go hard right every day and then i realized that about halfway through the trip and it's just from the from the standpoint that i don't live in that environment my body became wore out in the uh, around the three day mark uh three maybe four day mark and so what i would do is i would i would stay in or i would stay close to camp for that next morning hunt and then just relax all day until the the next morning's hunt 
and 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 then so I had this a big period of rest and then I could get up and go do it again and it would basically not necessarily bring me back up to 100% like pre-hunt but it would give me enough energy to keep going and not necessarily fade out and almost like give up towards the end right and you i said that earlier yeah. you know, a lot of my yeah. partners burn out at four or five days and that's what's going on yeah absolutely absolutely so um you said elk kind of kind of gets you right what what is it about elk that you're so passionate about um well since i was young my my i grew up in corn country in eastern south dakota not too far from iowa in fact I killed a lot of deer right on the Minnesota border. Yeah. Um, literally, I'd look into Minnesota. Uh, but my family bought a property in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and we started summering there when I was 10 years old. We'd go out there and spend, you know, weeks. And then we started deer hunting. And it, and it, and, and then my parents took us on vacations uh, out west. All that just suckered me into the fact that, I love the West. So I love, yeah. I love the habitat. And I, and I, I really, once I got out here and started um, looking around in Wyoming, you know, where, where I live now, uh, I just, I don't know. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an addiction. I look at a piece of country and I'll just say, I can do that. I can go in there. I can go in there hunting. I can go in there and pick up some shed elk antlers and get out by myself so i almost do everything exclusively solo now yeah and it's that's that's become i don't know a goofy challenge of mine but uh i i do have some friends i'm gonna meet a guy uh in two days now for my elk hunt but i suspect he'll be gone you know in four or five six days and i'll be solo again but uh, uh almost all my elk all of them in fact in the last 10 years i've killed solo yeah. and packed them out solo except for last year the the last load i got my neighbor kid to meet me uh we, we went up on the mountain and uh, he helped me pack out uh, the, the last oh it, it was the last three-fourths of an elk we broke it down i took out one pack and had three three loads of meat ready to go and we went in and took those three combined them into two and packed them yeah yeah that's that's physically demanding um talk about talk about that like a lot of the people who listen to this are midwestern hunters right talk about like walking in may be difficult but walking out with potentially over 70 close to 100 pounds of meat on your back is a different story what what's that actually like horrible (laughs) (laughs) it's People have to, yeah, the hunting is cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, it's still a grind. It can be grueling, but uh, you really have to look, for one thing, you get excited too, and young people do this all the time. They'll chase elk into hell holes. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, if you're chasing an elk down into a thousand foot canyon, you got to come back up out of that if you kill him with that first hundred load on, hundred pounds on, and then two to three. Uh, three to four more, two to three more, depending on how you break him down. But um, so, you, so that, and then you got to be ready for that. Yeah. Some people just don't really understand the whole aspect of um, 
I need a kill kit with me. You know, I need the game bags, a knife, knife sharpener, uh, latex gloves. Uh, uh, maybe I carry garbage bags. I use bag line, put that in my backpack as a bag liners to minimize blood, you know, different stuff like that. You got to be ready for that. You got to have a couple light sources. If you kill them late in the day, you're going to be doing all this at dark. And like I said, I kill most of my bulls in the morning, but I killed one several years ago, uh, right at day, dark in Montana with a bull and, um, broke him down in the dark. And the next morning I come in, there was a bear on that carcass. So you, a bear might come in on you in the dark. So you got to be ready for that. I mean, there's, uh, but you got to be in shape. You, it's one thing to be in shape to go into country with a minimal backpack, just your first aid, survival gear, lunch, a layer of clothes. It's a whole nother thing to come out with a hundred pounds on your back. It's, uh, it's, and especially if there's any type of train involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was my, that was my big mistake on my first ever elk hunt was, Hey, if I go hit the gym, and I'll just lift a whole bunch of weights, I'll be ready. Well, I may have been strong, but I was not conditioned. And so I think that's where I had to learn, right? Like, you know, just because you can do a, you can squat and bench press and, and, you know, deadlift, that doesn't mean that you can walk uphill for all day long. You know what I mean? For, for, you know, in thin air to, uh, to, be ready for that and, and i learned my lesson the hard way for sure yeah i call it mountain the mountain gym mountain conditioning yeah. i i have a little gym in my basement but uh if if and when i can I'm, I'm usually out in the mountains and i'm if people would see me you know you'd meet me on the street or whatever you, you wouldn't say oh man is there there's uh the next arnold schwarzenegger or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that but right it's it's just you're right. I mean, it's just conditioned to the environment. I live at half the elevation I hunt. I live at four thousand feet, so yeah. you know, jumping up to eight thousand, nine thousand feet, or even higher isn't you know doesn't affect me hardly at all. Yeah. Um, so I I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you can you can be gym tough, but there's a big difference between gym tough and mountain tough. I know that. Yeah, for sure. All right, so. Now, when it comes to the terrain, right, you, you hunt, you hunt mule deer as well. It, I know that elk terrain in certain areas can be pretty difficult. Um, but from, from the, the buddies that I know, let's say, for example, I'll just use Colorado as an example, Colorado, uh, where I, where we were hunting has some pretty intense terrain and the, the elk are up high, but the mule deer seem to be just up a little bit higher or further back or whatever from your experience is there a is there a, a terrain difference and uh um, um how do i put this a harder terrain to access on elk versus mule deer well again it all depends on the landscape you're hunting i i hunt eastern montana and that's you know fairly rolling pine covered bluffs and hills yeah so the mule deer and elk there i mean there it's it can get rugged but it's not like going into the bighorn mountains here where i hunt or the snowy range maybe down in southern wyoming or, or over by you know uh, on the east side of the yellowstone 
uh, or up in the thoroughfare, that can be really steep and rough. So it depends on environment. I, I have found though that elk and or mule deer in pressured areas go into the steepest uh, stuff possible. Very, very vertical stuff. And in mine, where I do a lot of my hunting and, and they use that vertical separation to, to separate, or they use that vertical terrain to separate themselves from hunters and not only hunters I, uh, or rifle hunters, bow hunters. I see them doing the same thing with shed hunters. Now, you know, shed hunting's gotten so popular. Yeah. 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 So, and they're, they're in stuff. A lot of times you would think you'd is uh bighorn sheep country. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's it's funny you say that because I was in South Dakota, this, where was it? Yeah. No, excuse me. Nebraska this, uh, last summer. And we were out in the grasslands and we ran into some bighorn sheep. They had been reintroduced there. They all had, a couple of them had collars on. And so it was cool to see. Cause when I thought of bighorn sheep, I just, I just instantly thought of the most aggressive rocky terrain possible. And here they are on a hill in, in the grasslands. So, um, it, it was pretty cool to see that. Yeah, they. I mean, they're like, I suppose, like elk in a way. They, they, they will go out into the Great Plains as as well. I mean, yeah. bad. The Badlands of South Dakota has uh, bighorn sheep in it, and and some. And a lot of times, where you see them is just on these little grassy plateaus grazing. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So you've uh, you've talked a little bit about you know how how much you you really like uh, elk hunting. Uh, now, when it comes to mule deer, it some guys hunt certain species for example i hunt turkey because i can't hunt deer at that time of year or you know it's like something to do when it's not deer hunting um when it comes to like mule deer or or whitetail do you have the the same passion towards those animals or is it just something to do to keep the the hunting fire lit uh because you can't hunt elk no, I, I have a similar passion for everything. And gotcha. I mean, I grew up, like I said, I cut my teeth on whitetails. So uh, going into the Midwest and hunting whitetails, you know, that rocks my world too. Rattling them in, grunting them in, decoying them in. Uh, you know, I love, I love all those aspects of it. And mule deer, I, you know, a lot of my mule deer hunting is in the edge of the mountains and they're more in the sagebrush. But, uh, trying to trying to map out a way and again here you can use your hunt stand but you know you see a mule deer out there maybe a mile in the distance and then you got to figure out you know the the terrain am i going to be able to keep out of sight that entire distance to get to him for a spot and stalk hunt and uh and that becomes the real challenge and then i do a lot of predator hunting i just i I love calling in coyotes i got a dog that usually goes with me kind of a decoy dog i would say and uh uh that that's another turn on i i get to you know take my dog out with me and uh do a lot of vocalizations act act like we are coyotes or angry canines to try to get another canine to interact with you yeah cool each each, each thing has its own you know attraction allure i do i do a lot of turkey hunting too yeah but it but there's one thing i i put aside everything for and that's i just really enjoy shed antler hunting yeah i don't know if it's because i'm not i don't have the pressure of i've got to fill the freezer at that time of year it's kind of more of a you know an escape uh 
kind of a fun hunt. You're looking at the country at a different time of year than you normally would be. And then it's the world's biggest Easter egg. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, man, when I was younger, I would shed hunt a lot and I love, I absolutely loved shed hunting, but recently, uh, and you know, here in Iowa, because back in the day, nobody cared if you were shed hunting like on their property. Hey, can I go shed hunt your property? You're telling me you want to go look for deer antlers. Yeah, you can go do that. Right. And so I have this collection of shed antlers that I found throughout the years. And as I started having kids and it became harder to access ground here in Iowa, shed hunting has kind of taken a back seat as far as the time uh, that I've put into it, but I can definitely see how, you know, just putting the boots to the ground on, you know, on some public ground would just be out west specifically would just be amazing yeah it's uh it's a lot of fun and it, and it's fun when you can escape the crowds and and just like i said go climb up you know a 1500 foot cliff face to get away from everybody and bam you're by yourself this, this year i didn't run into one person in the back country at all i saw boot tracks here or there but it was really a a nice spring where typically you're seeing people here and there but I didn't run into one person, just me and my dog the whole spring. So. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, like, what what is it about shed hunting that you like so much? I, I honestly don't. I'm just an antler nut. I love antlers. I got them laying everywhere in my house. I got them outside my yard. I got a big pile outside of my barn. I got a big pile in my barn. Uh I just like the I just like the aspect of looking of antlers and uh, and then like I said it's just a a unique challenge to find them but the one thing I have learned over all the years of shed hunting I've done it for decades now but is and same thing it's changed you know from when I started nobody cared and now you can't hardly even get on private land yeah but um yeah. uh the one thing I've learned is it is a huge eye opener to scouting and, 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 and being ready for the hunting season. A lot of the elk country I shed hunt in is where I hunt. And it's because of what I've learned shed hunting that I'm, I feel like I'm more successful as a hunter. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and our elk migrate, but I, I, but there's certain zones that they don't go in and they don't leave Yeah. or, or they pass through at a certain time. And, and, and that shed hunting has just really opened my eyes to, hidden benches in on a on a super steep base you know you can look at those topographical lines uh, on your hunt stand app or 3d mo- or using the 3d mode but walking with boots on the ground all of a sudden you see oh yeah here's a line of dugout beds these elk were on this bench all fall and you can tell because there was a whole line of rubs there every time they get up on yeah. their bed they made a new rub so yeah and I see the same thing whitetail hunting. You're down in some dense thicket, and it's like, holy cow, these these deer are spending a lot of time in here. And then it, and then you start looking at your hunting app and and connecting the dots again. And it's like, well, why wouldn't they be? It leads right out to the edge of this cornfield, you know, a, a half a mile away, and they're 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 putting that much distance between for safety from food to, to bedding cover. Yeah, absolutely. In, in 2018, man, I used a a, a shed where I found a shed specifically in that location to another, um, I guess you want to call it, uh, uh, 
I had a trail camera there. So using my, the hunting app per se, I, I dropped a line from where I found the shed to where that I got a picture of that deer and I set up in a terrain feature where, uh, right where that line crossed over. And sure enough, uh, that, that night I went in there. First time I went into that, that location on the right wind direction that I needed, he showed up and I shot him and now he's hanging on my wall. So, <laughs> so I, 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 I can actually say that I have used a shed that actually helped me kill a, a buck that I was chasing. So it was, uh, I mean, it, it's just another, it's just another piece of information is all it is. Yep. That's exactly yep. a little bit more evidence. Yep. Absolutely. Now, um, you've mentioned you, you got Montana this year. Uh, you got Kansas this year, you got Wyoming this year. Uh, any other hunts on the, on the schedule that this year that you're really looking forward to? Uh, South Dakota rifle. I'm going to do that right before Thanksgiving. And, and I look forward to that cause I'm hunting with one of my best friends and we stay at his house. We hunt his family ranch, uh, and some other places he has access to. And, uh, it's just a really fun hunt. And then, uh, Kansas is the same way. I hook up with some buddies. I, I spend so much time alone in the mountains, uh, in the fall hunting that it's nice to go back to some of these and they're just small. It's just two or three of us, you know, Yeah. but it's just a, it's just a nice hunting camp scenario where you, you know, if it's raining hard, you get up in the morning, you don't want to go sit in a tree stand. You, you don't, you make pancakes and hang out or whatever. Right. right. Uh, but if it's not raining, you know, then we're out hard chasing deer or snowing or whatever. And uh, so those hunts I, I'm looking forward to. And, and I don't, I used to always want to shoot the biggest deer and I, I still do, but I, I use common sense anymore. Same with public land elk, you know, it's like, uh, you see a good representative animal, you better be making hay with it and, uh, uh, and enjoying the overall hunt. Yeah. And, and another thing I do when I'm on those hunts, if I can tag out early, I always bring my coyote hunting set up and try to call coyotes for, you know, a couple mornings, uh, again wherever i'm at yeah i'll tell you this i have never seriously been a predator hunter but i got some uh friends who live in missouri and they absolutely they might love coyote hunting more than they love deer hunting uh they they (laughs) they absolutely love it and so i'm i'm still wondering how i could love something more than deer hunting but um i feel like that would be another another avenue to just extend the season to almost all year round and to do it with with kids do with kids and and the other thing again is uh, you know coyote hunting's gotten tougher with all the people out there nowadays but i i make them scouting trips too every every time i go out you know coyote hunting it's get out there at daybreak uh whether i'm calling coyotes then or or behind got my eye behind the spot scope looking at mule deer elk or white tails uh, in our country, we've got all three intermixed. So yeah, um, absolutely. It's, it's a great, great time to be scouting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you, you got, uh, you got, uh, you said you got Kansas kind of, uh, you're, you're learning Kansas or you kind of got Kansas nailed down or you're thinking about it more. Why, why Kansas over other whitetail states? Well, I, I, it goes back to elk hunting. I, yeah. I met a couple guys in an elk camp in Colorado years ago, 
and they had property in Kansas for whitetails and invited me down there, and we've been good friends ever since. So that's one reason. A, I got a connection. I got a, an open door, open gates to go hunt their properties. Yeah. And B, Kansas has giant whitetails. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. And and they allow you to bait. I'm not gonna sit here and say, you know, oh well, you know, we're hunting just uh, free rattling and all that i do everything but that baiting is a big aspect it helps keep a group of deer in a certain area over and over again and so when the rut occurs you have these and and food plots do the same thing you know and, and actually almost every bait we have set up on these farms is, in, is sitting right in the middle of the food plot yeah so uh uh but but that that surely helps they'll, those deer will come in they'll get some corn they're going to hit the alfalfa or the winter wheat or the turnips whatever is on the food plot and it's just a constant revolving door especially when you get that so-called lockdown period going on uh, at least you have these areas where does are returning and when a buck gets done breeding an estrus doe his first trip is going to be come back to that food source yeah for sure for sure well i tell you what man um i really appreciate you taking time out of your day i know you were busy today packing for uh packing for your trips that you got coming up uh so i really appreciate you taking time on your, out of your day to sit and bs with me for a little bit thank you very much and uh let me be uh one of the first to say good luck this uh season hopefully you'd lay down and, and slay <laughs> i'm hoping to get at least one elk in the uh, freezer uh, it's just a great source of meat it's it's tasty and and then just uh, supplement it with uh, deer so uh, that's my goal every year get an elk have a couple deer and uh, eat well the rest of the winter Amen. but i i really appreciate you inviting me on I mean, yeah uh, absolutely absolutely privilege i always love to talk to the folks about hunting whether it's uh and, and if people have questions ever they can go to my uh uh, website at markkaiser.com and it, it has links there to facebook and instagram are the two i do the most so yeah. they they can go on there and i'll you know if, if, if i'm not in the back country or something i'll try to get back to people right away if they got questions or comments or something i i, I try to answer it as much as i can so. yeah absolutely cool all right well appreciate your time and good luck this season thank you you have a good hunting season too dan Huge shout out to Mark. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. Hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed it. Please go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and uh, let everybody know how awesome this podcast is. Follow along on Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram. And uh, I'll tell you what, guys, uh, it's hunting season now, right? And so this episode may have been recorded a little earlier. And so all of September's gone now but it is the time of year where we all need to start thinking and putting plans together to get in out getting out into the woods specifically us whitetail hunters and uh getting the job done so planning preparation uh, making sure you have your safety harness and of course good vibes in good vibes out and we'll talk to you next time